we have started this series between here and Easter in the 23rd Psalm. And last week, Steve uh, was preaching about rest, and he brought us back to the garden and to the fall. And, you know, really looked at this picture of how we were created, how we lost that, and then how Jesus restores that to us. Um, do we have the uh, 23rd Psalm up there? If so, we're going to read that together. Phil's going to bring that up. All right, it's always a good habit to stand when you read the Scripture, so let's stand up, okay? We'll read this together. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thanks. You guys can sit. Today we're focusing on the Lord is my shepherd. He restores my soul. The Lord is my shepherd. He restores my soul. And um, the Hebrew for this word restores is... Um, is returns. And the word for soul is nephesh. And last week, Steve taught us, taught us a really cool uh, combination of words, a term. You remember the, the term Steve taught us last week? Ex nihilo. Did you go home just uh, saying ex nihilo? Uh, because it sounds so cool. Out of nothing, God made all things. He doesn't work with matter and start with matter like we do. He spoke matter into being. It was ex nihilo. And then nephesh today means soul. So you want to try saying nephesh? Good. Nefesh. Soul. Um, the good shepherd returns my nefesh. He returns my soul. And, you know, in order for something to have to be returned, it first has to be what? First has to be lost or, or, or taken. In the garden, we lost our nefesh. I mean, really, what is, is this kind of a strange idea? Soul is a word we toss around you know, kind of loosely. But what is this idea of nephesh? What is this idea of soul? In the garden, um, you know, God created humankind, if you remember, last, right? On the sixth day. And, you know, if you read Genesis 1 and 2, you see that Genesis 1 is sort of a, a real quick overview of creation. Days 1 through 6. And then Genesis 2 is like, you know, day 6 under the, uh, the, mic you know, the microscope under the lens, where you look closer at it and, and you get to see what happened in detail as God created humankind. And as God creates humankind, what we see is he does something unique that he doesn't do with anything else among creation, and that is that he breathes life into humankind. And the, the literal Hebrew for that is that, um, let me make sure I get this right, God nefeshed life into us. And then it says we became a living nefesh. Okay? 
And literally this, this idea is we are alive with the life of God. We are alive, we are alive with the life of God. And the whole you know, definition, that whole understanding of, of nephesh, of soul, hangs on that word with. Okay, with. Without God, there is no nephesh. God is, is nephesh supply for humankind. Separated from him, there's nothing. And there's just one way that we're told in, in the Genesis chapters, in the first chapters, just one way that we're told that that nephesh can be cut off. And what is that? What's that prohibition that we have in the garden? Don't eat from what? The tree. Tree of wisdom. Don't eat from that tree. That's it. Now, if you've ever read the, the scriptures or just you're new to the scriptures and you're reading the first couple chapters, I try to read this, and usually I try to read every scripture when I come to it fresh, as if I've never heard this stuff, seen this stuff before, and just let God speak his word to me. And as I listen to the word getting spoke to me, I go, this is the most bizarre story, perhaps, in the whole Bible. All right? I just don't see a logical connection between my life, my nephesh, and how eating from a tree ruins that. I don't understand. How can that be? In fact, when you read Genesis 1 and 2, it kind of sounds like a fairy tale, doesn't it? And, and it's the reason, in fact, that most scholars have said, oh, Genesis 1 and 2 just can't even, just can't even be true. Because it just sounds like fairy tale stuff. And it just gets, it's, it gets discounted, right? What's the connection between my life and that tree? It sounds about as arbitrary as glass slippers and house shoes turning, you know? changing at the stroke of midnight. Pumpkins and carriages. It makes just about as much sense, doesn't it? Fairy tale stuff. And then I thought, wait a second. Maybe that's the point. Maybe that's exactly the point of Genesis 1 and 2. It doesn't make sense to me. These two things don't seem to have any relationship to each other. Chesterton, you guys know, is my favorite. This is what he said in Orthodoxy as he opens up the, uh, the book. He says, the truest stories in the world are fairy tales. The true citizen of fairyland is obeying something he does not understand at all. In the fairy tale, an incomprehensible happiness rests upon an incomprehensible condition. Think about that, right? He says, a box is opened and all the evils fly out. A word is forgotten and cities perish. A lamp is lit and love flies away. A flower is plucked. Human lives are forfeited. Think more to our day. A bell is rung, and an evil witch is wakened. A lion is killed, and all of Narnia comes to life. An apple is eaten, and the hope of God is gone. We're not meant to understand the way things are. We're just made to trust and we're made to roll with it. Think about Cinderella before the fairy godmother. Fairy godmother says what? I'm setting you up on a really sweet date, right? You will not believe how good this date is, but there are some conditions. You must be back by what time? 12. What does Cinderella say? Cinderella says, I don't like that. I want to bargain for a, law, you know, a, a later curfew. No. She says, that's it, and she rolls with it. And she goes. The strangest question to me is, why does Cinderella trust? 
so easily? Why no protest? Why doesn't she contest the terms and say, look at it, can we do this at, say, 1.30 a.m.? Give or take a few. Can it last forever? Why these conditions? No, she doesn't ask at all. And I think the answer is because Cinderella is in awe of the fairy godmother. Right? She's never seen someone of such power, such grace, such kindness in her life. She's in awe. She's mesmerized. Whatever the fairy godmother stipulates, Cinderella will do without question. She will just do it. Have you ever seen that happen around you in someone's life? Or have, has it ever happened to you? And can you remember that happening to you in your life? Raise your hand if you've seen that or if, you, or if you've partaken of, uh, of that. This is the thing fairy tales, I think, really get right and why they're so true. Because there is a direct relationship, there's a direct connection between what I adore and trusting. There's a direct relationship between awe and trust. What I adore, I trust. What I worship, what I delight in, I trust. We were created to marvel at God, to be so in awe of him, so enamored with him, so caught up in him that we would never question what he said to us, what he spoke to us. We would just do. No tree, no problem. 12 o'clock, no problem. I'll be there. Adoration, awe, and trust, they just go hand in hand. Think of, um, well, it's an old movie now, but uh, you remember the movie Father of the Bride with Steve Martin? Remember this, this story is his, his, his daughter, I think, goes away overseas to, you know, as an exchange student, and she comes back, and she brings home Brian, her fiancé, and this is a total shock to the family. They, they can't believe it. They don't know what's happened to their daughter. She's changed. She's grown up, and, you know, here's this stranger sitting at the table, who is she is just in awe of. And I just, one scene sticks out in my head as they're getting ready to go out for like some ice cream on a date or something. And George, who's the father, says to Annie, hey, it's a little cold out there. Why don't you get a jacket? And she says, no thanks, I'll be just fine. And then Brian, her new fiance, only moments later says, hey, you know, I really think you ought to wear a jacket. And she says, you do? Okay. She goes, goes to the closet, puts on a jacket, praises his wisdom, and George is left there going, what just happened to me? The adoration has switched, you know? She just trusts instinctively whatever her fiancé says because she's in awe of him. Our parents ate from the tree because they stopped trusting God. And they stopped trusting God because they stopped being in awe of God. They stopped adoring him. They stopped worshiping him. They stopped delighting in him. And Nephesh was gone the moment it happened. The gospel of Jesus is about returning Nephesh to us. And there are two means by which he returns Nephesh to us, by which he returns life. The first is that he recaptures our adoration. I want to talk about that first. And the second is that he restores our trust in him. There are um, rules for humans, just as there are rules in fairy tales, right? What are some of your fa favorite fairy tales? Think of them, right? There are always rules. There are always boundaries that have to be 
uh, have to be followed, have to be observed. And there are rules for humans. And the scriptures lay them out pretty well for us. And the first two rules, the, the top two rules, are this. You are what you adore. That's the first one. And you are only as good as the one whom you trust in. C.S. Lewis said that you become like what you worship. You've probably heard that before. He, uh, I think he got that from a really old guy named Henry Skogel, who I'd never heard of before. Um, Henry Skogel put it this way. The worth and excellency of a soul is measured by the object of its love. And that's kind of complicated, but here's what he's saying. You reflect what you adore. And, and this is, sounds simple, but it's a little more complex than that. We have to think of what it isn't. You reflect what you adore means the thing that you adore doesn't reflect you. Okay? You don't change the thing that you adore, but the thing that you adore changes you. If you delight in beautiful things, you will become more beautiful. If you delight in ugly things, you will become uglier. And obviously we mean spiritually as a, as a person who you are. That's what you'll become. It's not the other way around. It's not, I am ugly, therefore I delight in ugly things. You're not confined. I'm not confined to worship ugly things simply because spiritually I'm ugly. There's uh, another film that came to my head. Films always come to my head when I'm working on preaching. And um, years ago, another film called As Good As It Gets. How many of you remember As Good As It Gets? Good. Right? Jack Nicholson. Unforgettable Jack Nicholson plays a guy named Melvin Udall. All right? If you've never seen this before, it's definitely worth seeing. Um, he is grumpy, obsessive, compulsive. He's a neurotic jerk, right? He is as rude as they come. And he meets Carol Connolly, who couldn't be more opposite of him. She's this, this lovely, kind, gracious, generous, loving waitress who waits on Melvin. And uh, if you remember the film, what you see is within the span of like two hours, the, the grumpiest man in the world is transformed right before our eyes into something beautiful. And you just witness this transformation from ugliness into beauty. And it's because of Melvin's adoration for Carol, his love for Carol, his delight in Carol, that he is changed. There's a scene um, where they go into this restaurant. And, uh, you know, the long story short is, is, Apparently, Melvin's underdressed. He has to get a coat and tie, and so he runs down a couple of stores and hits a shop and comes back with a coat and a tie, and they're seated, and, and he says what he would normally say. He says, you know, it's, it's kind of crazy. Uh, they won't let me in here without a suit and tie, and they let you in here in a common house dress, right? Just the normal rude thing he would say. She stands up, and he says, whoa, 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 where are you going? And she says, pay me a compliment. I need a compliment now. And he says, okay, hold on, I got a, I got a real good one. And then and you, know, you think, oh, man, what, what's coming, you know, <laughs> next? And he says, I have this condition. Doctors say it could be helped with a pill. I hate pills. And he says, hate. I'm using the word hate to describe a pill. And she says, what does this have to do with me? And he says, last night, I went home. 
and I took those pills. And she says, I still don't see what that has to do with me. And he says, you make me want to be a better man. You make me want to be a better man. Melvin's love for something beautiful arcs back on him and changes him into something beautiful. You know, the truth is, too, just speaking real personally about, I mean, I know I think every guy in here, every guy in here, including myself, is Melvin Udall. That is our story. If you reflect and just line up all of us guys with our wives and you look at it objectively, the only conclusion is, is what are these women doing with these men? Right? There is no logical connection between these two at all. At all. Our women are gracious beyond comparison. We are ugly, drooling, stumbling, you know, mess of guys. And, and we do. Sometimes we just sit around together and we go, what is your wife doing with you, man? You know, we do it to, we do, we say this to each other. I said that to Adam last week. I said, man, your wife is incredible. What is she doing? How'd you land her? Uh, we're made more beautiful by the things that we adore. It happens in an earthly level, and it happens also really at a spiritual level. And the, you know, the greatest thing in the universe, the most beautiful thing in the universe to adore is Christ Jesus. There is nothing more worthy of our adoration, of our praise, of our delight than Jesus. And not just Jesus, the one who goes by the lake and, and grabs the disciples and teaches on top of the mount and feeds the 5,000. Not just that Jesus. Above all Jesuses that we get to see, not even baby Jesus, it's Jesus crucified. I think that is the one thing that God said, this is how I will recapture my adoration from this people. My son crucified. Here's what um, the picture is of Re in Revelation chapter 5. I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. There's, there's not just a sort of coincidental meeting that the picture, the vision that John is giving of the entire earth in praise and all the angelic beings in praise to Jesus is that he is the Lamb who was slain. Not just the guy who taught on a hill. Not the guy who healed the sick. But the one who restores life to us by his own sacrifice. God recaptures our adoration. He recaptures our life through Jesus on the cross. And the scriptures say if he becomes, there's an if, if he becomes the object of our adoration, of our delight, of our enjoyment, of our praise, then we will become like him. Think about what Paul says, right? We with all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being changed into his likeness from one degree to another. Beholding is that idea of being fixed, a fixed gaze of delight and adoration, of awe, of not being able to take your eyes off of him, 
John says, that's because he's life. In him was nephesh. And that nephesh was the light of all humankind. If we behold the life, we'll come to life. Our nephesh will be returned to us. John Piper says it this way. He says, the most excellent soul is the soul that delights in God, who is life. And the more I focus on the glory of God, the more I'm changed into his likeness. We tend to become like what we admire and enjoy. And when we admire the life, we become alive. And there's no other way given to us than but this, to become alive. A couple of practical things then. Just things for us to think about. Inventory what you praise, what you delight in, what you enjoy. Have you ever done that? Just sort of taken a step back, just stopped for a moment to be still and pondered, what is it that my heart really delights in? You know, is it, is it video games? Is it sports? Is it, you know, my, my wife, my kids, my job, my home? There are countless things that we can delight ourselves in that will always leave us high and dry, that will never deliver that life that we hope will be in there. What are you delighting yourself in? Whatever it is that you celebrate, that you delight in, whether or not you're aware of it, it shows up on you. You reflect it. It doesn't reflect you. Remember, that object arcs back on you, and it shows through. It's one of those reasons sometimes we can tell a lot about a person just by meeting them for the first time and sitting down. We can't know everything, obviously, but we can pretty well pinpoint some really certain things about them, what they love, what they cherish, what they delight in. That's why a lot of times you meet someone, you go, oh, well, sure, they're a Christian. Uh, they haven't said anything specifically. They haven't said, oh, I love Jesus. But there's something in there that says they're bearing the image of Jesus. They delight in the things of God. I can see it all over them. It means that we have to be very proactive about the things that we do praise, very selective about the things that we enjoy. And not because we're legalistic, but because we're just aware that those things are, are reflecting on us in some way and changing us because we're enjoying them and, and delighting them and uh, adoring them. One of the things you can do practically, too, is mark out time in your day along the way to praise God intentionally. If you ever read through the Old Testament, hopefully you guys are doing this a little bit through the uh, reading calendar. I know Leviticus is very weird if you're reading through Leviticus. Um, and by some giggles, I know that you've been reading it going, what is happening here? Um, but stick with it. If you read through the Old Testament, one of the things that you always find is that whenever the Hebrews stop to pray and give thanks to God, you know what they almost always give thanks to him for being? The God who pulled us up out of Egypt by his own hand and made us his people. Almost every prayer begins that way. To the God of Israel who rescued us from our captors' hands in Egypt and made us a people to worship him and serve him. They're always recounting that, that huge event. One of the things that happens all the time when, when Jesse's dad and mom come down is I usually let Bob pray because, you know, he's the older guy. Um, he's the senior one. So I let him sort of pray over our, our household when we do meals and get together. And it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Because whenever my father-in-law prays, he prays for a really long time. And 
you know, usually uh, we, we, we're pretty short on prayer because we're used to the kids and they don't hold out for all that long. My father-in-law, every single prayer, it is without a doubt, prays the gospel. Every time he goes through the whole story. Thank you, God, for sending your son to die on a cross for us, for rescuing me, for paying the pen penalty for my sins. And you go, I'm like, oh my gosh, every time it's the gospel, forever. And I'm like, the food's getting cold, you know? Spiritually shallow guy that I am, I want to eat. But then I'm thinking, you know what, there's something beautiful about this. My father-in-law is recounting the one key event in our entire lives, in our history, that we should be praising him for that should just define us every time when you remind yourself of the goodness of God when you remind yourself of the things that he does you relive the experience you relive it again that's why the scriptures tell us they actually command us to remember and give thanks right if you're reading this morning I don't know if anyone was reading the calendar this morning and read Psalm 105 right well I mean Man, you, you, it couldn't have been better timing. Give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known among the nations what he's done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell all of his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Remember the wonders he has done. Here's a few more. Give thanks to the God of heaven. Give thanks to the Lord, for he's good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known among the nations what he's done. Oh, that my heart may sing to you and not be silent, O Lord my God. I will give you thanks forever. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. We, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will praise you forever from generation to generation. We will recount your praise. Remember, the psalmist says, recount the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he has pronounced. Praise completes the experience of God. The way it does when, you know, leaving a movie theater after a film that you've just enjoyed and reveled in, what is the natural response? Praise. You cannot leave a movie theater that you have not enjoyed, you know, catching a film. You cannot enjoy a film and not walk out and say something about it. You have to say something about it. Something about it just feels incomplete until we do. And then we try to break it down and analyze it and figure out exactly what is so good about it. What, is it, what has been done so well that we enjoyed? That, it's, that it delights our hearts. In the same way, why can't we praise God in that? To walk out of, you know, an event for our kids or for a family or a time with friends or at the coffee house and just be able to say, you know what? God is good. And let's try to figure out why and see the things that he's done and tell each other about it and tell our friends about how good he is. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, give thanks to God in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is what you were made for. All right, second thing, shortly, trust. You are only as good as the one who you trust in. Spiritually speaking, on my own, on your own, we can't find our way out of a paper bag, right? We are completely and wholly untrustworthy. We don't have a clue what's going on in this world or what life is about outside of Christ. 
Think about Solomon, right? The wisest one who ever lived in the book of Ecclesiastes. Basically, what he's doing in Ecclesiastes is he's looking at the world. And he's trying to break it down and analyze it and see what the meaning of the world is. And in the end, he says, you know what? I got nothing. I got nothing. None of this stuff makes sense. None of this stuff matches up. I can't figure out any of it. But one thing, and this is how he wraps up his, his book. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. All's been heard, he said. Nothing makes sense. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God. Trust God. And keep his commandments. For this is what it means to be human. That's the most literal translation of that Hebrew. This is what it means to be human. Fear God and trust him. You've got no hope. Otherwise, otherwise you know, any other way. Any otherwise. You've got nothing. Psalm 119. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I'd have died. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light from my path. I've taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous ways. I've suffered much. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your word. Right? Life is a maze. Anyone ever just gone through the corn mazes or anything like that at Halloween just for fun, you know, over the, uh, the orchards and stuff like that? Or actually been in a real giant maze and played in one of those things? You know the first feeling that comes over me when I step into one of those? Fear. Especially if I can't peek over the, you know, the walls and it's deep. Fear. When you walk into those things, you stare at a wall and it's just wall upon wall. Whenever we do mazes, you know, if you've ever done mazes in those little books, like, you know, the Sudoku books and all that kind of stuff, you always have the advantage of what? Perspective. You've always got the top-down view. You're like, oh, man, I can do this thing in a heartbeat, right? God has that perspective. We do not. We're in the midst of it. Basically, God, if you're looking for analogies, God's a GPS system, right? God's a Garmin, and he's calling out. You ever have those Garmin? Anyone have those Garmin's in the cars? I really want one. Um, I love those things. You can even make them talk in a British accent. Did you know that? It's really kind of cool. Hang on right, please, at the next turn. Um, and, uh, you know, there you go. You, you can't get lost with these things. It's just you put it on audio and it says, hang on right. Okay, you go. And in a sense, you know, God's law is, is like, you know, him being a Garmin over our shoulder or on the dashboard saying, hang on right, hang on left, keep going straight, you know. And we go, okay, um, I can do that. Calling rights and left. And then, then this is the bizarrest thing, though. Even with the God Garmin, right, on my dashboard telling me where to go and how to, and how to move and what turns to take, for some reason I still go sometimes the wrong way. The psalmist isn't finished yet with his Psalm 119. Listen to what he says. Accept, O Lord, the willing praise of my mouth. Teach me your laws, though, though I constantly take my life into my own hands. Right? Sometimes we just ignore the shepherd for some strange reason and may not even be conscious. He's steering everybody over towards the middle of the pasture. I end up at the river and I go, what just happened here? What am I doing? How did I end up over here? And the beautiful thing is, 
is that God comes in Jesus and he picks me up and he leads me back and he doesn't even seem irritated. And I would be, right? Paul says it this way. Um, he finds this law at work in him. In his inner being, he delights in God's law, but there's another law at work in his sinful nature that wages war against him. And it makes him a prisoner and leads him astray. And he says, what a wretched man am I. Who rescued me from this? And then he says, praise be to God for Christ Jesus. This is what God's saying. Look, I didn't create you to make it on your own. I didn't create you to understand I created you to delight in me with childlike awe and delight. And I created you to trust me. Do these and you will live. Psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord. Lean not on your own understanding. Instead, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord. Lean not on your own understanding. They're connected together. Instead, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Incidentally, too, this is our best witness, isn't it? Like if our life is anything less than an overflow of love and trust in God, then whatever we do, and for whatever reason we do it, it's works. It's moral effort. It's a burden to the people around us. It's just me heaping one more filthy rag of righteousness on the pile. Because it's not me living out of freedom. It's not me living out of love and adoration. It's not me living out of trust. And you know what people smell when they smell me living that way? They smell the stench of death. Because I'm not alive in those moments. I am most alive. And people are most blessed when I am delighting in God and trusting Him to the utmost. And it's also true for, for you. Sometimes we have to grow into things by rehearsing things that we aren't even yet. So let's stand up and let's say this together because I think this is uh, the hope that I have for us as a people, the hope that I have for myself in me, that this would just be me. And this would just be you. This would be us collectively together and the world around us would feel it, that it is true. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. My heart leaps for joy, and I will give thanks to him in song. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The Lord is my shepherd. He restores my soul. 